welcome to the British History Podcast. My name is Jamie. Okay, let's leave Britain for this episode and head to Rome. Ah, Rome. I hear it's nice this time of year. Actually, I hear it's really hot this time of year. But it seems like everywhere is really hot right now, so Rome it is. So, it's 595 CE. And Bede tells us that Pope Gregory I decided to visit a nearby slave market. Why? Well, we're not entirely sure. Maybe it was a slow day at the Vatican, and this was before the internet, so what else are you going to do for fun? Whatever the reason, apparently the Pope decided to go peruse the wares, so to speak. And we're told that he came upon a group of pale-skinned, fair-haired slave boys. And apparently they caught his eye. When Gregory inquired about them, he was told they were Angles. It's reported that he responded to this by saying non-Angli said Angeli. In English, that means not Angles, but angels. I like to imagine that he turned to a nearby acolyte and immediately high-fived him. Anyway, we're told that he then asked more specifically where the boys were from, and he was told that they were pagans from Diera to which Gregory added that they should be rescued from Daira, which in Latin means from wrath. And then hopefully he turned around and said, Sabinian, don't leave me hanging, bro. Come on, that was pretty good. Bede neglects to tell us if high fives actually occurred, but the high fives, or more likely groans, were well-deserved because we're told that after learning that the king of Diera was named King Ayla, we're told that Gregory instead decided to refer to him as King Alleluia. <laughs> and then I'm guessing that he said, Thank you. You've been a great audience. I'll be here all week. Before dispatching Augustine to convert the pagans. So that's Bede's version. It's simple, punchy, and is focused upon the angles in the north. Which I'm sure is completely coincidental despite the fact that it's where Bede was located. I'm sure you've started to gather that I'm not exactly convinced by this. Let's leave aside the fact that Pope Gregory comes off like a drunk guy at an open mic night. And we can also set aside the fact that King Ayla of Diera would have been dead at this point. But let's just look at the cause and effect of what Bede says that Gregory experienced and then what he did. If the Pope is obsessed with the angles of Diera, the mission would have been focused upon Diera or at the very least Bernicia, right? Yet it's focused like a laser in the south, in Kent. And that just seems questionable to me. Not to mention that it doesn't really comport with what we know of what was really going on. Bede's story gives the impression that the mission was mystical and the result of happenstance, or maybe providence. And that's a great story to tell at a mass, or maybe over a pint or something like that. But the reality looks like it's much more complex than that. Converting the West had long been an ambition of the church. For example, even before Patrick, Pope Celestine sent Palladius to the Irish due to exactly that sort of ambition. And the desire to bring the West within the control of Rome, and at the very least Christianity, didn't go away just because the Western Empire collapsed. In fact, once Clovis, the king of the Franks, was converted, the church had a renewed desire to bring the West under its control. And to do that, they wanted to use the power of their new Frankish converts in the West to bring Christianity to the people over whom the Franks exercised power. And that actually covered quite a lot of territory. The Franks were pretty badass in those early days. 
But over the generations, it had become clear that this plan was nothing more than a disappointment for the most part. Just like in the old Roman days, the Rhine frontier was still a rather stubborn boundary. But it wasn't just across the Rhine where the Franks could exercise some influence. There were also the people across the Channel. In Britain, Ethelbert, that young rascal that had given Chalin so many headaches, had married the daughter of Cheribert I, who was the king of Paris. Her name was Bertha. And more than that, as part of the marital arrangements, she was allowed to keep her faith, and she could also bring a Frankish bishop with her, a man by the name of Leudhard. At least, I think that's how you pronounce it. I am awful with French. Anyways, we will call him the Frankish bishop from now on. So, she was allowed to bring her bishop with her, and when they arrived, the bishop and the new queen, Bertha, restored the church at Canterbury. And this was possibly St. Martin's Church. Now, some have theorized that the presence of the bishop in the restoration of the church is evidence that one of the conditions of the marriage was the conversion of King Ethelbert. But there really isn't anything in the way of firm evidence either supporting or disproving that, so it's just one of those open questions. But if that was the case, it might explain why the king willingly tolerated a foreign holy man in his court, and even allowed him to go restore a church. So that's one possibility. But... Maybe he was just desperate to have ties to the Franks. After all, Frankish material was all the rage in Kent, so it might have just been an outright concession, something along the lines of, fine, bring the dusty old man, just so long as you let me marry into the coolest family around and help me push around Wessex. Those guys are jerks. Something like that. Or maybe it was more of a human and innocent reason, such as curiosity. For example, Bede tells us of how another Anglo-Saxon king was upset because he wasn't given any communion bread. And he demanded that the bread be handed over to him, even though he hadn't been baptized. Why? Well, it looks like it was just out of sheer curiosity, since he said he had no interest in becoming baptized. And he was clearly not hungry. I mean, he was part of the aristocracy. So maybe it was just something like that. But it's likely that we'll never know exactly why this happened, and why Ethelbert was okay with it. Regardless, it was a major development for Christianity in the east of Britain, and I'm sure that the church recognized that the way into Britain was opening up. Well, sort of. Ethelbert and his fellow Kentishmen were still pagan, so there was a bit of an uphill battle there, but not entirely uphill. I mean, we do have records, at least according to one source, that Ethelbert let it be known that he was open to the idea of conversion. However, for whatever reason, the Frankish bishops just didn't seem overly excited to undertake a mission. Or maybe they thought the Frankish bishop who was already over there should do the job. But apparently he didn't do a very good job because it doesn't appear that he converted many people. But for whatever reason, the Franks just didn't seem that excited about going and converting Kent. But whatever, the Pope could just handle it on his own, right? Well... Not really. He really needed the support of the Franks if this was going to work. If any pressure from Rome could be put on Britain, it would have to come through Francia. So Pope Gregory started writing letters to bishops and to kings, and even to the widow of Sigebert I, who was the grandmother of the rulers of Austrasia and Burgundy. And he was trying to get them all on board. This was a full-court press. As far as Pope Gregory was concerned, Everybody would be involved in spreading Christianity into Britain, even if he had to go and get your Nana involved. And let's face it, Nana can be quite persuasive when she wants to be. 
So that's what the Pope was up to. And the basic thrust of what was going on here, and the reason why all of a sudden it was such a big deal, is that this was the best chance the church has had for quite a while to break into the Anglo-Saxon kingdoms. They had the Franks that were nearby, and they were Christian, and they were powerful. And they were already demonstrating that they had an impressive amount of influence upon the Kingdom of Kent, both in culture and style, as well as in dynastic connections. The Queen of Kent was a Frankish princess, for example. So that gave them quite a foot in the door. And more importantly, King Ethelbert had just managed to secure military hegemonic domination. With the fall of Chalin, Ethelbert was now Bretwalda. He reigned supreme in the south. And with that level of power, he was in a unique position to be able to change gods. It seemed like the stars were aligning for a mission. Furthermore, some historians have theorized that perhaps the Frankish bishop had also recently died, and therefore there was an opening for a mission to Kent as there was a need for a regional bishop. And the loss of a Frankish bishop in Kent might have been viewed as a weakening of the overlordship that the Franks were exercising over their Anglo-Saxon neighbors. And thus, maybe that provided the Franks with a bit of motivation to support the Pope's mission. So, with the timing and support lining up, the Pope needed to select a man for the task. And he went with the prior of his own monastery of St. Andrew, a man by the name of Augustine. Now, the prior isn't the top dog. It's the abbot. But Gregory didn't pick the abbot of the monastery because, well, he was the abbot. Though, with his various duties as a pope, chances are that Augustine was something of a de facto abbot and probably had a great deal of administrative and other duties. And so Gregory probably had a good idea of whether or not Augustine was the man for this particular task. And given the amount of power that he wielded, Gregory probably trusted this monk and knew him to be capable. In fact, he later wrote to Ethelbert praising Augustine's knowledge of the Bible, so he must have also been familiar with Augustine's ecclesiastical qualifications. Which makes sense, being that they must have worked together at least for some time. So Augustine was Gregory's man. But he wasn't going alone. The Pope also picked a group of monks and other missionaries, about 40 in all, to accompany Augustine. I know sometimes the way this tale is told that it sounds like Augustine just showed up on his own, but he actually had something of a posse. And the Pope had their backs. Like I mentioned earlier, he had been seeking support from the Frankish bishops, various kings and clergy in the region, and even the grandmother of some of the kings. The Pope knew that travel was dangerous and rather arduous, and he was doing what he could to make sure that the mission would be successful, and that the missionaries would find friendly faces as they passed through Europe on the way to Britain. But the support wasn't just for travel, it was also political. It would ensure that, when Augustine and his fellow missionaries arrived, they would be taken seriously by Ethelbert. A single holy man randomly arriving at court could be discounted. A gang of holy men supported by major figures in Europe, many of whom were connected socially or even by blood, to Ethelbert's wife? Well, that's going to be harder to ignore. So things were shaping up, and this looked like it was about to work. But, despite the support... It was still kind of scary. Really scary, in fact. And not too long after the missionaries left Rome, they stopped dead in their tracks. I like to imagine that they said something along the lines of, Wait, we're going all this way to talk to a bunch of savages on an island that has always been a thorn in the side of Rome? Huh, no thank you. I think I have a headache, so you should probably find somebody else to do it. 
So with his missionaries possibly calling in sick, Augustine had to go back to the Pope. How awkward is that? Now, there is another reason why they might have stopped. King Childebert II might have just died, and since he was one of the waypoints on their mission, they might have needed new letters of introduction and possibly a new plan. But whatever, we're told that they stopped and sent Augustine back to the Pope, and that the Pope wrote a letter encouraging them to, essentially, toughen up and do their jobs. And, probably since Augustine didn't have the vapors over the mission, he was named the Abbot of the Mission, and then Augustine returned to his band of missionaries, and they continued on their trip. Things were finally proceeding. And Pope Gregory wasn't ignorant of history, nor the implications of his plan. This was the return of Rome to the West. This was huge. And the Roman flavor of what happens really can't be missed by anyone. I mean, Gregory even had a plan for a rough version of the old diocese of Britannia Prima and Britannia Secunda, just like in the old days of Rome. Only, instead of London or Colchester being the center of the south, this time it would be Canterbury. The plan, however, was not without difficulties, even if everything went perfectly. For example, it would place the territory of Wales under the religious control of the pagans that he hoped to convert. Which is a bit cheeky, considering that, as you learned in the Welsh cast, Christianity was alive and well in the West. Yet the new kid on the block was getting all the love. Now you might be saying, well, he couldn't have had the West be the center of Christian life, otherwise the Anglo-Saxons, who were rather grouchy about the Welsh, would never have converted. And maybe that's the case. But I've never liked the idea of punching one's supporters or even simply taking them for granted in order to maybe get a few reluctant converts, which is probably why I'll never end up in politics. But anyway, that's roughly what the Pope's plan was. Though, I do wonder if he had more information regarding the state of Britain, if he would have done things differently. Because his information was a little bit limited. And next time, we'll talk about some of the things that he almost certainly didn't know about. Okay, instead of advertising the community, I'd just like to throw a small shout-out to the community. It seems like we've got quite a few members who are going through some pretty rough times, financial, medical, and otherwise. Even my stepfather right now is hospitalized. It's just tough all over. So if you're dealing with some rough stuff right now, my thoughts are with you. I've got my fingers crossed, and I really hope it turns around soon. So take care of yourself, feel better, and I'll see you next week. Thanks for listening. Okay, BHP Pub Quiz, the churchy edition. All right, I hope you have your pen and paper ready, and here we go. Number one. True or false, pockets of Christians persisted in England following the withdrawal of Rome. 2. What is the name of the monk who informed us of much of what we know about the 6th and 7th century of Anglo-Saxon England? 3. What is the name of the Pope who ordered the conversion of the Anglo-Saxons? 4. Who did the Pope send to convert the Anglo-Saxons? 5. What did the Pope say upon learning that the fair-haired slave boys were Angles? And a bonus point if you know what he said in Latin. 6. Which Anglo-Saxon king was the target of the missionaries? And 7. What kingdom did he rule over? 
8. True or false? Some Christians in the sub-Roman period worshipped inside mausoleums. 9. What does the word plan translate to in English? 10. True or false? Gildas despised religious figures who had sex outside of wedlock, but didn't mind clergy who had spouses. 11. Out of antiquity, and specifically out of Rome, there was a concept that the primary vector of sin was... what? 12. What Christian religious movement became really popular in Wales in the sub-Roman era? 13. Name the saint who traveled from Ireland to preach to the Picts and, according to one source, even visited the Anglo-Saxons prior to the arrival of the Roman Catholic Church. 14. What language was the early Western Bible written in? And 15. The bond of Godfather and Godson was significant in Anglo-Saxon Britain. And what sort of relationship could it be compared to at the time? Okay, as usual, if you missed any questions, just rewind and we'll wait for you here. Otherwise, here come the answers. 1. True or false, pockets of Christians persisted in England following the withdrawal of Rome? That's true. We know of several Christian cults that existed, and there were also probably indigenous British populations that continued to worship. Number 2. What is the name of the monk who informed us of much of what we know about the 6th and 7th century of Anglo-Saxon England? That was the Venerable Bede or just bead. Number three, what was the name of the Pope who ordered the conversion of the Anglo-Saxons? That was Pope Gregory. Number four, who did the Pope send to convert the Anglo-Saxons? Well, the Pope sent Augustine, as well as about 40 monks and missionaries. But if you just put down Augustine, that's fine. Number five, what did the Pope say upon learning that the fair-haired slave boys were Angles? He said, not angles, but angels. And if you wrote that in Latin, it would read, non angli said angeli. And you'll get a bonus point for that. Number six, which Anglo-Saxon king was the target of the missionaries? That was King Ethelbert. Number seven, what kingdom did he rule over? He ruled over Kent. Number eight, true or false, some Christians in the sub-Roman period worshiped inside mausoleums. That is true. Number nine, what does plan translate to in English? It translates to church site or cemetery. Number 10, true or false, Gildas despised religious figures who had sex outside of wedlock, but he didn't mind clergy who had spouses. That's false. That is absolutely false. Number 11, out of antiquity, and specifically out of Rome, there was a concept that the primary vector of sin was what? It was the body. Number 12, what Christian religious movement became really popular in Wales in the sub-Roman era? Monasticism. Number 13, name the saint who traveled from Ireland to preach to the Picts and, according to one source, even visited the Anglo-Saxons prior to the arrival of the Roman Catholic Church? That was St. Columba. 
Number 14. What language was the early Western Bible written in? It was written in Latin. And 15. The bond of Godfather and Godson was significant in Anglo-Saxon Britain. And what sort of relationship could it be compared to at the time? It could be compared to a familial relationship or a blood relationship. Okay, I hope you did well, and more importantly, I hope you had fun, and I'll see you next month.